Ben Franklin said that there are two certain things in life, death and taxes. I want to add a third this morning, conflict. Conflict is an inevitable, constant part of life. And it, and it begins right here. Isn't there conflict in here many times? And then there's conflict between people. And then there's conflict between neighbors. And then there's conflict between cities and lands and countries. We're watching in our day tremendous conflict all over the world. It has been this way from the start. Why? It really goes back before the creation of the world. It really goes back to eons ago, timeless, but somewhere in eternity past, there was a moment that started all this stuff, this conflict within us, between people, the stuff we hate. It was when the chief archangel Lucifer rose up in rebellion against God. And he was cast down. And that began a conflict that is going on today. The root of everything, the boiled down element of everything is Satan and God. Now Satan was defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ and his claim over humanity. He lost it. But he goes on as a vanquished enemy of God trying to still cause conflict. If you don't see that, you just won't see the slap coming. Paul told Timothy, all that will live godly shall suffer persecution. They're just going to. Now, if you don't live godly, you probably won't suffer persecution. That's the flip side of it. But there's much loss in not living in a godly way. When we look back at the nation of Israel, in the entering in to Canaan land, in the conquest, the conflict with the tribes and people groups in that land was inevitable. Nobody lays the sword down and goes, oh, Come on, have the land of milk and honey. We've been living here for hundreds of years, but you can have it. Spiritual conflict is real. I always smile when I'm in a, well, I don't smile when I'm in a funeral or or, or when I'm, but when I'm preaching the gospel and I get down to the real fine nitty gritty points of it, a baby always raises up and begins to cry. I've noticed that. There's always someone who gets up and moves. So nobody give a move this morning. (laughs) The enemy always wants to distract. He always wants to take the seed of the word of God out of our hearts. He attacks in two different ways, to the church and to our lives. We're going to see both of them in scripture in Joshua chapter 9. Fascinating chapter. I want you to turn there. Joshua chapter 9. And we'll see old Slewfoot in his attack against Israel. Now, if you're a peace lover and you got your rose colored glasses on and you think it all can be worked out if we just talk it out, 
you don't know the inevitable conflict in the spiritual realm. Someone has to be defeated. Two can't live when there's enmity between the two. They just can't. Even the Beatitudes where Jesus taught, blessed are the peacemakers, implies conflict. Because you don't have to make something that is already present. Joshua chapter 9. Look at verse 1. Old story, new truth. It's going on today in our world. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea, toward Lebanon, this is Canaan land. This is on the west of the Jordan. I'm sorry, the east. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Hivites, the Mosquito Bites. Thanks for catching that. I never can resist that. The Jebusites, when they heard of this. Well, ask yourself when you read the scripture, what is the this that they heard of? It wasn't the attack against Jericho. It wasn't. I'll show you why in a minute. It wasn't the defeat of Ai that stirred all these opposing people groups to come together in oneness to attack. You need to look back up in chapter 8, verse 30, to find out what riled the beehive up. Verse 30, at that time... Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. There is going to be, watch this carefully, an altar built between two great mountains, Ebal and Jerazim. Ebal means bald, without any vegetation, a big rock. Geherzen next door was the Mount of Blessing. Ebal was the Mount of Cursing. And notice what he does after he builds the altar. And there in the, verse 32, and there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. He, he took, we, we know from earlier books, he took white plaster and plastered a bunch of rocks. And with a stick or his finger, he wrote the law of Moses to be hardened in that rock. This is in enemy territory beyond the Jordan in Canaan land. Surrounded by the enemies, Joshua builds an altar and writes the word of God. He is proclaiming the authority and rule of the kingdom of God in enemy territory. That's what he's doing. And then notice what he does then. Verse 34. And afterward he read all the words of the law. The blessing, Gehazin. The curse, Ibal. According to all that was written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. When the sermon goes long and you become impatient, 
and you want to go eat your fried chicken. Remember this day that all of Israel, and notice it says there wasn't a word that he didn't read. And the women and the little ones and soldiers who lived, they sat for hour upon hour upon hour as Joshua read the word of God. This is what stirred the kings up. This is what riled the enemy. Not the defeat of Jericho and Ai, but for the preacher to actually proclaim the authority of God Almighty in the midst, claiming the land for themselves. See? Now, if all you want out of Christianity is a fire escape and to be saved, and kind of mill and muddle along to heaven, there'll be very little opposition for you. But if you get serious about Christ and your walk with him and his life in you, and you study, and you pray, and you grow in grace, and you let God to begin to work through you, you will have trouble upon trouble, heartache upon heartache, persecution will come your way, you will put yourself in the flow of the opposition. But I'm telling you, there's no more exciting place to be than growing in grace and watching God use you. It's amazing. And no glory goes to you, it all goes to him. And your life begins to count for Christ. And then when you get there, he'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. There is no greater joy, I suppose, than to hand your head to Christ that has been cut off and say, this is what happened because I served you. You'll get your head back. (laughs) No scars. I think this is the Psalms that tells us those who lead many to righteousness will shine like stars forever. What a great place to be, this this Canaan land surrounded by your enemies and they get all stirred up. By the way, a, a, a gospel preaching church that stays strong on sin and hell and judgment and the return of Christ and the gospel of grace and proclaims that Jesus is the only way will receive persecution from the world. But those churches who water down the pulpit where all we get is a feel-good sermon about how to be a better person, that runs right into the world's embrace. We are never to sound like them. We are to proclaim a message of another kingdom that's coming. Well, they got all riled up, and that's the attack from the outside. The church through the ages has been attacked from the outside. It has rarely been hurt by an attack from the outside. I think of the first attack against the church from the outside was when they imprisoned Peter, I think. They cut James' head off. The church was strengthened. Remember Remember the persecution of Saul? And the church scattered? They were like that spider that you step on in the garage. You step on him and a thousand spiders take off from him. Then what have I done? I've released trouble all over my garage. They stepped On Stephen, they killed and martyred that godly saint, and the church scattered. 
And all of a sudden, rather than being lumped together in Jerusalem, churches were sprouting up all over the place. You can't hurt the church from the outside. But the second kind of attack has hurt many times the church. Now, I'm of great confidence with the church because Jesus said, I'll build my church and nothing will prevail against it. But there have been attacks from the inside. And this is what happens in verse 2. Take a look at it in verse 2. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they weren't concerned about the altar and the word of God and the proclamation of God's authority like the kings. They were scared for their lives. You see the difference? For those of you who want to study further, think why those two are different. I'd tell you, but I'm not sure myself. You go home and think about why the five kings were, these, five, these kings were stirred up by the law, but these Gibeonites were scared, not for that, but because of Jericho and Ai. That's why I know the other group didn't care about Jericho and Ai. Notice what they did. They, on their part, in, in, con- in contrast to the kings, acted with cunning and went and made provisions and took out worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. Now, the Gibeonites lived close by, but do you understand they're creating with an image of a people far away, as you'll see in a minute, wore out clothes, dried bread. Notice it goes on, verse 6, and they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the people of... Did you catch what they were going to do? I need to... I need to share some scripture before this to help you understand why Joshua went astray and what his error was. I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 27. I'm going to show you some verses that if Joshua had been paying attention, he would have never fallen into this trap. Numbers chapter 27. It's a couple books back from Joshua. Numbers chapter 27. Remember now, these Gibeonites dressed in old clothes and came to Joshua. There were two different groups in... uh, well, let's, let's see the... i tell you what, keep your finger there. Let's go to Deuteronomy 20. That's where I meant to go first. Deuteronomy 20. Go a book further up. Deuteronomy 20. We'll get back to numbers in a moment. Deuteronomy, the next book over, chapter 20. I'll give you a moment to get there. There were two different groups that Israel was, were to encounter on their way out of Egypt. 
One were groups that were not in Canaan land, and the other ones were cities and kings that were in the land. They were to treat them differently. Chapter 20 of Deuteronomy, verse 10. Look with me at verse 10. He says, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, this is the cities that were not in Canaan land, on the way to Canaan land. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. If it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people you are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But it goes on, if they don't make peace, destroy and kill the men. Don't kill the women and children, kill the men. Notice verse 16. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance that's in Canaan land, you shall save nothing alive that breathes. And then he has this list that we just read, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and and on and on. Did you catch that? Did you hear that? The first cities... When you come to them, offer peace. Not when they come to you. So right away, Joshua should have been alerted that there was something wrong with these people coming to him. It's a violation of the command here of what he was supposed to do. Why do I share that? Because a knowledge of Scripture for a believer are like guns, like bullets in a gun. There are moments when you don't know what to do. And if you know the scripture, it will give you wisdom for what to do. It'll tell you in moments, but if you don't know it, you don't have anything in your gun. Joshua should have known better. That's the first thing that happened. Now go back to Numbers 27. Numbers 27. Let's establish this, then we'll go back to Joshua. Numbers chapter 27, we have Joshua succeeding Moses in leadership. And really, if you'll notice down in verse 18, it's God who picks Joshua. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest, and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. Moses, you shall invest him with some of your authority, so that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. Now watch this. This is very crucial at this point. And he shall stand, Joshua shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of Urim. That's dice. That's a stone that's painted black and white to know a decision to make. This is how they made decisions by the Lord. Notice before the Lord. At this this word, they shall go in. In other words, they'll go into battle. At this judgment of Eliezer, they shall come out. When you get into the land, you'll know what to do in a decision comes when you come before Eliezer and you roll that stone and you'll hear the mind of the Lord. 
You will read nothing of that in the story that we're going to look at. You see that? Specific instructions of what to do. And Joshua thought the decision of the Gibeonites was so small that he didn't have to inquire of the Lord. Now go back to Joshua chapter 9. Let's continue in the story and see how it plays out. I want to establish those things in your mind because I need you to know that Joshua and the men of Israel made specific, serious mistakes in how they handled this situation because they ignored the scripture of what it told us and they ignored the counsel of how to hear from the Lord. All right, so chapter 9, and we are back at verse 6. So they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal, and they said, We have come to, from a distant country, verse 7. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, <laughs> You know who the Hivites were, don't you? This isn't the first time they showed up in Scripture. There's a great story back in Genesis, and if you want a good laugh, well, not a good laugh, if you want a little humor out of the Scripture, read the story out of Genesis about Shechem and... Um, uh, his son, who lay with the daughter of Jacob, a lady named Dinah. And uh, he found her in the field. She was a daughter of Jacob. And this, he grabbed her and raped her in the field. And the sons of Jacob, her brother, found out about that rape. Well, this Canaanite, this Hivite, who raped her, had apparently thought he loved her, wouldn't do that if he loved her. But anyway, he said, went to his father and said, give me the woman. I want this woman to wife. So his father went to Jacob and wanted the woman. Well, the brothers intercepted the meeting and they said to him this, we will give our sister to you to wed, but we can't, we can't give her to an uncircumcised Canaanite. So not only will we want you to get circumcised, but all the men in this Hivite village, we need you all to get circumcised. So they said, that's great. We'll do it. How many of y'all have heard this story? It's a great story. Let me go on to the story. So they agree to it, and all the men get circumcised. Well, they're sore. They're not in fighting shape a day or two after. And the sons of Jacob come out and wipe out the whole city. Wipe them out. Deception by Israel. It's the same tribe who comes back hundreds of years later and deceives them. Hivite means serpent. Isn't that interesting? So, you know, it came back to bite them, didn't it? Doesn't stuff come back to bite us at times? So, all right, with that little bit of history, verse 7. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you, you live among us. How can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? And they said, from a very distant country your servants have come. Because of that, wait, 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 wait. You never answer the questions. Who are you? What's the name of the country? They never tell them who they are, they, and they just repeat from a very distant country. You see, ask the questions, demand the answers. Now, they appealed to Israel's pride at this point. How? 
This was a new nation and a new land. They were going to conquer the nation. All of a sudden, you have an you have an assembly come from a foreign country desiring to make peace. You see, they're kind of recognizing that Israel has the authority to give this peace in this land, appealing to their pride. But they never answer the questions. Notice verse 9, from a very distant country, your servants have come. Notice they throw the Lord's name in there because of the name of the Lord. You know, people throw God's name around for their own good, many times. I I don't want you to distrust everybody you meet, but always be smart. People will try to deceive you. Be wise. Think. Don't make any decisions quickly. Quick decisions are bad decisions normally. There's always time to say, well, let me ask the Lord about that. Give me a day and maybe I'll call you back. I always love the salesman who always tells me, I can only give you this price today. I tell him, no, you can give me it tomorrow and the next day and the next day. In fact, you can give me a less price than this. Be smart. Listen. Ask questions. Don't rush into anything. Women are more uh, intuitive than men. Men, listen to your wives before you make decisions. Always seek their counsel. Karen has really saved me from some bad decisions. If you don't have a wife, find a good woman and ask her what she thinks. You don't have to do what she thinks. It's just, you know... It's just good to ask. Yeah. Well, they don't always give you the good counsel. Notice in the end of verse 9. For we have heard a report of him, of the Lord your God, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. Notice they're smart enough not to mention Jericho and Ai, because that would have given them away, because that just happened. They thought this plan through. You know, sometimes we think people who lived thousands of years ago were stupid and cavemen, and bang their heads into rocks. I think those who lived back then were incredibly intelligent. Amen. Possibly a lot. Now, they didn't have the iPads and they didn't have the internet, but they were brilliant people. I think the further we get away from Adam and Eve, the more thick we became. Yeah. We're a little thick out here. Yeah. These were smart guys. They dressed the part, they talked the part, they had the plan. Notice what he says down in verse 11. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it out of our houses for our food to the journey on the day that we set out to come to you. And now behold, it is dry and crumbly. Look at the wineskins. They were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. 
And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out with a very long journey. Verse 14, so the men, the men of Israel, took some of the provisions, meaning they looked at them, and they did not ask counsel from the Lord. There it is. It all made sense. The story was good. The clothes were old. The bread was moldy. It all made sense. But what makes sense is not always God's will. And the Lord will pull you up from time to time and pull me up and say, don't go in this direction. I want you to go in that direction. We'll continue on next week. Give you a couple things. There is no matter in life that's too small that the Lord shouldn't be consulted. I think the Lord directs the steps of a good man. He guides us through. But when there's decisions to make, nothing's too small. To say, Lord, what do you think? What do you think? And if you don't know what to do and he's not saying anything, probably don't do anything. Until you get direction from him. It's a great way to live. It'll help you avoid mistakes. Should I loan this money to this person? Probably not. I'll just tell you that by the way. <laughs> what should I do in this situation? Ask him. I don't know what to ask him. He's waiting. He may not tell you right away, but he'll give you direction. Nothing's too small. Nothing. What should I do in my life? Number two. We are never at a place as Christians where the potential to fall in sin is not ever present with us. If you remember on the heels of this terrible decision to let the Gibeonites infiltrate the camp of Israel was the fall at Ai. Remember that? How many saints have we seen in the scripture who were rebuked or sinned and then right afterward did this very same thing? How about Abraham when he went down into Egypt and lied about Sarah, his wife, saying, that's my sister, and was rebuked by the Lord? He goes off months later into another, and it does the same thing. Peter was rebuked for denying the Lord. And then a few short, maybe months or years later, he was rebuked by Paul for separating from the Gentiles because he didn't want to be a part with them. We are ever present with the flesh. It doesn't matter how many victories we have, how well we think we're doing, the potential to fall is always present with us. Never trust yourself. Never. Know that the enemy is always around and he gets in and it's easy many times if we're not watching to fall. You know, take heed, lest you think you stand, lest you fall. And number three, we err. We err when we ignore the scripture. What does the scripture tell us? It tells us a lot of things. It tells us, parents, that foolishness 
is bound up in the heart of a child. And the rod of reproof will drive it far from them. We want to talk sin out of them. The scripture says, beat sin out of them. We want, to, we want to rationalize with the world's methods. And the scripture tells us clearly that a man and a woman who live together outside of marriage is fornication and sin. That the marriage bed is the honorable place. It is undefiled. Sex outside of marriage is sin and fornication. The scripture's clear about that. It is clear about a lot of topics. It gives light to the soul for young people to know the decisions to make. If we would take heed to it, but we err when we first don't know it, and then ignore what we do know, thinking we are getting away from it. Mount Ebal was the mount of cursing. It was the bald rock Gehazi means crumpled and broken up. It was a mountain standing right next to it that had allowed the time and elements to break up all those rocks and it had vegetation. It was the life that had been received the word of God and the blessing was on that life and growth was on Mount Gehazi. It was the mount that the Samaritans built their temple on years later on that particular mount. You can't ignore the scripture and then not run into peril with it. I could go command after command after command of things clearly defined as sin in the scripture. And when it says it, we are to run from it and run to grace. The enemy in conflict is inevitable. Satan attacks from the outside. The enemy attacks from the inside. The outside has always strengthened the church. But when sin gets in the church, if it is not dealt with and got out of the church, it will destroy the church. If sin gets into our lives and we don't reckon ourselves dead indeed unto that sin, those sins will destroy us destroy our testimony and our effectiveness of Christ.